Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everyone, it is episode 196. Today is March 4th, 2021, and this is Human Factors Cast. Today is the only day of the year where it's actually also a command, March 4th. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Frank Laxon over there. Hey, Frank, how are you? Hey, hey doing great today. Thanks for being on. Thank you for being on. <laughs> <laughs> got him. All right. Hey, we, we got a great show for you today. Uh, we're going to be taking some questions from the community. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at how Google has uh, rolling out a new slew of upgrades for improving their virtual classrooms. Um, and uh, yeah, we got some fun stuff going on. Uh, if if you are listening to this, that means you are subscribed to our podcast. Thank you for doing that. Uh, we are on YouTube now again. We are, um, you know, you can find us there. We're, we're slowly spreading out into more streaming services. Um, and, and we do have some really exciting things here on the horizon. But I'll tease those in a minute. Frank, I got to know what's going on with you because last we spoke, it was back in January. We kind of talked about this a little bit in the pre-show, but it was, it was January and, and the whole GameStop thing was happening. Um, so what's been going on with you, man? Oh, thanks for, thanks for asking. Yeah, I, I believe last time I was on in January, we talked a little bit about the uh, supply chain uh, potential problems that happen for vaccines. Uh, looks like, uh, based on the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine being available, it uh, looks like the supply chain, some of that those problems have been alleviated a little bit. Uh, it looks like a lot of uh, uh, folks that were originally delayed in terms of getting vaccinated uh, are getting vaccinated early. Yeah, and, and that's great. The, the, the delays are being uh, got, getting rid of. And, and then there's also the whole... Um, the whole being moved everything up to the end of May for, for everyone getting a shot in their arm. And that's great. That's great news. Um, but you, you were mentioning to me before the show that you had, uh, you had some experience with a car buying process you wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I've had this car for a long time. It's a 2002. So it's, it's, it's about time. And, and I think if it weren't for the, uh, the pandemic situation, I probably would have put a lot more miles on it. Uh, so recently I'd looked for uh car buying experience, just went to a couple of dealers, uh, researched a, a few cars, went online and noticed that uh, the uh, amount of uh, experience, the, the user experience of going to each of these places is different. Uh, I'm not going to say what which one is better uh, for uh, compared to a dealership versus one of those sites, uh, but it, they're just different. Uh, so, so for someone that's looking for a car, trying to get more exploratory about different makes and models, a dealership is, is a decent place to go in terms of being able to actually test drive a car, see what it is, get some information about it. Uh, but what's been interesting with a lot of the information available online and folks uh, maybe having some brand loyalty to the cars, uh, some of these online places like a, like a, like a Carvana or even a CarMax uh, provide a lot more streamlined experience. Uh, and that goes with the price negotiations and what um, bells and whistles get added to the cars. So There's really interesting life cycle costs um, where you go in the car dealership, you might be able to get a little bit of a discount, but you're going to spend some more time and there might be some more 
unanticipated uh, costs. But when you go to something like uh, Carvana or CarMax, that cost is kind of rolled up up front. Hmm. So it looks like a little bit of sticker shock. Things might seem a little more expensive, but depending on what kind of consumer one is, one actually is saving money and time by choosing one of those. Uh, so that, yeah. that was an interesting, interesting experience, and just kind of noticing the the human psychology of the different places and what they, what they offer. Now, what kind of hidden fees might you expect uh, that that are rolled into the like CarMax or Carvana that you mentioned um, that are separate with like the dealerships? Uh, there's there's actually very few hidden fees with with um, uh, the CarMax Carvana. Things are very much upfront because uh, because the the the, the the usual fees of tax, title, and license; those are pretty much set. Uh, but then after that, is it's it's pretty much that's that's the price you pay, uh, at least on, on the sticker. Right, and so those things are kind of withheld from the uh, the dealership, and they kind of get you with some added cost there. <laughs> Yeah, for for most things, you know, I, do, I know you did a uh, a show on uh, on some of the GameStop and some kind of financial things. Yeah. And, um, once uh, once one gets consumer gets to a uh, a monthly payment, that's where a lot of opportunity to to hide costs comes into play. You know, instead of sticking of one one set price, now you're dividing something by thirty six or mm-hmm. fifty sixty, and then and now it's like oh, it's just a couple bucks a month, but once you add that up, you're like, wait a second, some of these numbers are adding a little higher than expected. Yeah, and on top of that, you got like interest and stuff too, which I'm two payments away from paying off my car, and I'm very excited about that. Oh yeah, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, it'll be yeah, so it's a very good day when that happens. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool, man. Well, I I, I am glad that you are. Uh, thinking about human factors in your everyday life. Uh, not that you wouldn't, but to just have those types of experiences where, um, you know, like it is user friendly to have all that stuff just right up front for you where you don't have to worry about other stuff, you know? Um, that's kind of cool. Yeah. What's uh, going on uh, with you lately? Well, uh, I kind of alluded to it a little earlier, but man, we have been, uh, I guess, is, what, next week is like one year in a pandemic. Um, and. The way that we do things have changed so dramatically, and it's just like, it's one of those things where I was just reflecting on it. You know, you've seen the memes where it's like, you know, last March and then this March, and it's like it came up on you, and and it still feels like last March in some weird way, uh, where, you know, we're all still working from home, and um, or most of us are, and and getting out into the world is just really weird, and like, you know, I, I was telling Blake, I went to the dentist a couple weeks ago and I had to take my mask off in front of other people that I didn't know. And that was just a surreal experience, you know, like they'd been vaccinated. No big deal for them. But like to, it's just this weird uh, social norm that we've slowly gotten used to over the course of the last year that, uh, you know, just. It's kind of crazy to think about where, where we use what we used to do. Um, and like, wow, we used to breathe next to other people. That's, that's kind of weird, right? Hey, remember those things called offices where everyone kind of got together in, in one building, uh, and, and did work. That was weird, right? Yeah. We just kind of just touch the same surfaces. Yeah. You know, (laughs) shake each other hands. (laughs) Crazy. Uh, yeah, I've been, I just been thinking a lot about that lately and, um, you know, it, the, the pandemic has given, uh, me a lot of free time. Uh, to do things. And, and one of those is to put some love back into the podcast. And I, I mentioned a little tease earlier. I'm going to tease it again here. Um, we, uh, I, I, we've been a little coy on social media lately. I don't know if you noticed, we've been posting 
soon and the date for one uh 2021 um and uh if, if you just do a couple little quick calculations uh this is episode 196 and there's four uh, weeks in a month and so uh I'll, I'll leave it at that but we got some really exciting things coming up that i'm very excited about like i'm genuinely super excited for um and and some of the effort is is already underway with uh some of the you know, putting us back on YouTube, that stuff. Uh, but we have a lot of really cool things. It's like I'm, I'm looking at this list, and it's at least ten items long, of of just fun stuff. So uh, you know, um, I've been putting a lot of effort into the podcast over the last week. Let's just say that, and it's it's. Uh, I can't wait to share it with everyone. I really can't. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of really fun, really neat. Uh, surprises and uh, and and fun stuff to do. So um, that's that's just a little tease. I see your cursor there, Frank. We are not going to uh, we're not going to talk about any of this. Don't talk about any of that. We're not talking about it. Stay <laughs> on the talk about the podcast improvements. A. Yes. All right. Well, um, I think it's time that we get into this next part of the show. Yes, it's Human Factors News. This is the part of the show all about, you guessed it, Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. Uh, This could be anything from uh, we got some medical, privacy, security, robots, whatever it is, you name it. As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it's fair game for us to sit here and talk about. Frank, what do we have up this week? Uh, So this week's article uh, is called uh, about Google uh, releasing a slew of upgrades to improve virtual classrooms. Uh, so education, I know it's been a few uh, years since a few of us have been in school, but it's never been dependent on technology as it has been today, uh, especially for uh, high school and middle school students um, that have started, gosh, like you said, one full year uh, of distance learning. Uh, a lot of these classrooms on, have gone virtual, and parents are becoming more involved as educators and teachers, um, and they've kind of grown familiar with the different video conferencing platforms uh, than ever. Uh, so a lot of adjustments that are also happening on the teachers and they're used to uh, teaching from uh, in-person uh, kind of teaching to this virtual teaching. And so a lot of a lot of teachers have been using what's uh, called Google Classroom. It's a suite of education tools, and there's now going to be new improvements to it uh, to improve the existing uh, made for learning products. Uh, it helps the teachers, helps the students and teachers navigate through the online schooling process and and, and keep keeps track of everything. Uh, so updates are underway for Classroom. This is one of the biggest parts of the suite, um, as well as some really neat things on the pipeline for student engagement, tracking, uh, Google Meet, as well as workspaces. And so the nice thing about these Google products, uh, especially if you're talking about enterprise users, is that these updates happen automatically. Uh, and it re- usually requires minimal to, to know hardware changes as, as well, which is great for um, different uh, use, uh, different uh environments or different machines, operating systems. Uh, so Google said it'll kind of talk about the impacted institutions since there's going to be a few changes on the back end uh, to discuss some kind of additional storage options to, to help get these, uh, uh, roll out these changes. So it looks like, oh gosh, a lot of people are using this Google Classroom, about 170 million students and educators worldwide 
uh, or using workspace for education. Uh, and so uh, there's also, looks like you know, currently, gosh, a lot of year-to-year -year growth too, uh, up to 150 million users globally uh, for the classroom suite itself, up $40 million, 40 million uh, students from a year ago. Yeah, so so there's a lot here, um, and and they've kind of announced these uh, these upgrades in a in a in kind of these categories, right? They have classroom, uh, Google for education, uh, the the student tracking, student engagement tracking. There's Google Meet, um, Google Classroom integrations. There's Workspace for education and uh, a roster sync. Um, and so I figured what we could do is kind of take each of these and just kind of pull out some fun facts for these. Now you have kind of a unique experience when it comes to Google Classroom. Um, you were telling me that uh, someone um, uses Google Classroom and you're familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a really interesting coincidence. Uh, as, as we found out about this, uh, talking a little bit about this at the pre-show, uh, actually, my, my wife's a teacher. Uh, so she teaches online and she uh, learned, uh, learned to use Google Classroom uh, by by herself, uh, she just looked at some uh, YouTube videos, maybe read a couple forums and that kinds of things. Looked at the help and support, uh, basic. But basically, she had to to construct one um, for, from scratch, and so she uses that every week uh, for for her students. And have you seen the interface like behind the scenes? Have you seen what it looks like from a, 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 a classroom instructor's perspective? Yeah, it's, so it's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of reuse that, that can happen, and that's important uh, for going between year year by year, uh, as well as setting up multiple instances of a class. Uh, so it, it, it's really nice user interface. Um, like I said, my, my, uh, my wife did, uh, just learned it on her own, uh, just with a lot of, lot of technologies these days. And uh, she was able to kind of set things up and uh, use uh, kind of the familiar familiar uh, user interactions that she uses for her other uh, Google products. Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, so that's great that you have that that frame of reference so we can talk about these upgrades in that context. So I just want to go through some of these. Yeah. We'll start with Classroom because I think this is where they announced kind of the biggest sweep. And we'll kind of talk about this from a human factors perspective and what this actually means, uh, both for instructors, educators, and um, for, for students. Uh, so, whoa, dropping stuff all over the place over here. Uh, so in terms of classroom, um, you know, the, the, the classroom service, uh, I think you mentioned this, it's a kind of a dashboard, right, for uh, for teachers and students. It's kind of like this learning management system. Um, and, and so what they've kind of announced is that the Android app will get uh, better offline support. Um, basically, uh, you know, right now, I guess, as, as I understand it, the students can't quite... Um, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to start their work in Google uh, Classroom and then finish it when they're online later, right? And so now they're kind of providing that kind of capability. Uh, we're also looking at like drive attachments, Google Drive attachment, um, uh, review, write assignments without an internet connection, photo uploads are getting improved on the Android app. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and they have, let's see here, they're, they're allowing edit the assignments, whether you're on web, iOS, Android. So basically it, it kind of sounds like they're just providing a lot more functionality to the, the, the mobile app, right? Which I mean, is, is something that, um, we've, 
I mean, that's 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 kind of great, right? Because now you have sort of this um, this ability there that you didn't have before. Yeah, it, and it sounded like early on uh, a lot of the uh, the classes were uh, assignments you know, were were done on on the computer itself, and, and and I think a lot of these these upgrades, especially going to a more mobile friendly uh, kind of features, uh, will allow uh, students to kind of capture uh, the time uh, that they have and, and use that uh, to their advantage. Uh, this reminds me of a a, uh, a project that I used to work on um, for a human resources portal, and the intent was to be able to capture spare moments of your day uh, after a, a busy week or on the job to kind of chip away at different tasks. So I could see something like this going on um, for, for, for students. Uh, you know, they might not always be at their computer or they might have some siblings that you know, might share a computer with siblings and parents. So they're able to do some work, uh, away from their, their main device or just kind of, kind of like with gaming that with the Google Stadia being able to kind of transfer the work, pick up devices. anywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I think there's, there's an interesting, uh, implication for this too right because they they've built this in the world of covid and the world where many students are um home learning right now they're they're taking classes at home however uh something like this can be very beneficial even outside of of you know the world that we live in today think about in in a year from now when everyone's going back to college campuses or something like that where uh let's say there's a commuter camp campus and you ride uh, a, a, a train or a bus or something to the campus and you have a couple minutes to type something out um, on your phone and you do and you kind of have the like like you said those bits and pieces of your day where this might be um, a great opportunity for someone to just jump in and uh, you know at least like oh I'm thinking of an outline in my head and so I'm going to pop in and put my outline in and then I can fill it in later or something like yeah. that so yeah that's that's a great application um you know, with Classroom 2, they've also, uh, so that's kind of from like the student side, right? They're providing all that functionality into the app. They're kind of saying, hey, you can you can do all the stuff that you couldn't before. Um, and and now uh, they, they've uh, also done things for teachers in, in the classroom as well, right? So they're, they're helping them catch potential plagiarism. They're, you know, by these originality reports. And you've seen these in like Blackboard for a while now or Turnitin, I think, is another one that does... Um, that does this type of thing. But the interesting thing about this is that Google has sort of, uh, they have Google Translate, right? And so you have um, uh, many different languages by which you can uh, check that plagiarism against, right? So if somebody has translated it from another language and they've just uh, added a couple things to make it flow better in English, then that's, you know, something that they can check against. Um, you know, uh, also from the educator's perspective on the Android app, they can switch between, um, submissions on different students within the app now um, and give and share feedback directly from that app as well. Uh, looks like there's going to be some student engagement tracking feature uh, that allows them to display statistics about which students have submitted assignments and um, which have uh, engaged with the class by commenting on posts. Uh, and it looks like there's, you know, a potential for... We always think about the users of these systems in, in terms of... of um, educators and classroom but there's there's a third user that often goes unseen 
which is kind of the admin or or the maintainers. Uh, and so so they're also adding the capability to do audit logs, activity logs, to understand what happens when the system fails. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mention uh, administrators and other kinds of maintainers, uh, where there's certain times of the, of the school year, uh, especially around progress reports and grading, uh, that concentrates a lot of the work. Uh, so a teacher not only has to grade everything, they have to submit the grades, make sure they're accurate. Uh, and and depending on what kind of systems you use, not, not so much happening with Google, there's a lot of help and support calls, more, more than one would think, uh, to, to kind of get everything all together. And all this support calls are happening at the same time during progress review time, because that's when every, the grade books are open and a lot of data is being moved around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's great to see that those are those types of users are being taken into consideration too, um, and uh, you know I don't. Did you have any other thoughts on the educator stuff? Because I know I kind of like blew through that and went straight to the other user group, but I want to make sure that if you had anything to comment on the educators using this classroom portal, um, like the plagiarism or the uh, the you know switching between students and looking at the analytics. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that that. Uh, well, you mentioned about student engagement tracking. That's actually uh, a very important uh, job uh, in terms of especially online classrooms. Uh, when when you're teaching in person, you can still kind of get a sense of who's paying attention, um, who's who's uh, you know how 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 things are going. Get a feel of how things are going for a class. Much different in a, in a virtual environment. Uh, so being able to kind of pick up on some of these trends real time. Um, both provides real-time feedback for the educator. can say, okay, well, maybe we're not getting as many comments or things are less engagement happening. Let's switch to a different topic. Let's kind of, you know, move to a different activity. And I can imagine the engagement goes back, goes back up. Uh, really interesting about plagiarism. Uh, that's been one of the big things, um, especially for, for tests, uh, to make sure that the student has their camera on, uh, but there's only so much one can do uh, in terms of kind of pre pre preventing plagiarism. So it's really interesting to see how these tools will work out for teachers. Do you, can I can I ask you a question? Then this is a little bit of a tangent. Um, yeah. But your wife is an educator. Do, do, do you find that that rule for keeping your camera on is something that's fairly commonplace among educators? It's it's one of those things where. I think it's important to um, get a sense of, of how the students are doing and, and making sure there's a connection. Um, what, what she actually does is she makes, uh, I think it's also her way of uh, uh, taking attendance. Okay. So she has folks turn their camera on and, and give a, a one to five grade on how they're doing. Uh, and oh, that's so, interesting. Uh, and, and, and I think that's important, uh, especially these days where not as much social connections are, are happening. So I wonder if that's something that's, you know, maybe not just her classroom, but other class, other teachers are using that as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I don't know. It's, I haven't taken a class in a global pandemic, but I would imagine that, um, you know, similar to conference calls, I, you know, for, for let's say half of last year. I was on conference calls where there was no video. There was no, it was just voice and things seemed to get done just fine. Um, full disclosure, I worked with you during that time and uh, it, it, 
you know, working with you is great. So <laughs> then the other half of, of last year, or I guess into this year, I've been on video calls where we've shown faces and I haven't really noticed a large difference between the two. Um, and so I, I was just wondering from that context of an educator and from context with the classroom, um, how does that dynamic change? Because I'd imagine like it, 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 uh, you, you mentioned it in the pre-show. There's a saying that we have on the show. It depends where, you know, like, let's say, uh, I am one of those students, believe it or not, I'm on a podcast right now, but believe it or not, I was one of those students who very much didn't like the attention to be on them in the classroom. I was a passive learner. I absorbed the information and asked questions to the teacher after the after the class, cause I didn't want to look like an idiot. And, um, I can very much see students like myself who would want to, abstain from the video like d is it required to be on the entire time i understand it's like a uh a check and i know we're like way off the rails here we're talking about google but i, I just have to know like <laughs> yeah i think there's, there's a baseline uh willingness uh to to have the camera on uh and i i, I think i think teachers kind of know which students are, are a little bit shy uh and so there might be uh a, a little bit softer enforcement uh, on those students. Um, but I, teachers are savvy too, so they probably know which students are the troublemakers uh, and will be a little bit more strict in terms of, of that. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's just kind of a gut check, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, especially, uh, you know, these days with devices and things, you know, so, so it's basically making sure that uh, kids aren't opening up their Nintendo Switches. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Could be. I mean, you can learn while playing the Nintendo Switch. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I learned. Yeah, there's meetings that you attend while maybe playing a Nintendo Switch. While you're, you know, it's it's fine. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get back to this thing because I I, I want to touch base on some of these other ones here. So you have, um, in terms of the Google for Education Classroom student engagement tracking, we talked a little bit about this up up top. Um, but there's kind of like a student information system in the, in the program here. Uh, basically there's going to be, um, they're, they're going to be integrating with this framework that allows it to connect to other services, uh, later this year. So for example, like a grade export, um, you know, for, I, I, this is all kind of another language to me, but it sounds like there's just a, a larger integration with other services going on. Um, I could say the specific names, but it won't mean anything to me, and I couldn't comment on it. Uh, but it sounds like that means that overall there's less data entry. Um, you know, from from at least the uh, the educator side, they would say yeah. this is that like from what I under understanding from this this paragraph here is that they put in an A on the assignment. And they no longer have to put in that A on the overall calculation for the overall grade. It just kind of takes it in and and imports it and rolls it up. Oh, this is this one's a game changer, actually. Is it? Uh, so, so, in terms of the Google Classroom itself, uh, there's a lot of Google Forms integration. Uh, so, if, if anyone ever created a survey on Google Forms, can kind of create a survey. Uh, and, and automatically record the responses and have it uh, export to a spreadsheet. But now with with, with uh, Google Classroom, a survey you can think of a survey as a quiz, and so uh, a a, t a student can take a quiz, um, get feedback automatically on which items get are correct or incorrect, and gets put into a spreadsheet and automatically graded. But 
without this feature, um, what a teacher has to do is take that information, manually put it on a piece of paper, or copy it over to the homegrown to the app that or the application that the school uses. So there's a lot of manual still ma- manual entry there, and a lot of imagine like we talked about uh, progress reports and grades being submitted. A lot of it is this validation. It's like okay, Google Google Forms graded as a nine out of ten. So I got to take that, bring it over to the uh, to the system, looking you know, checking between back screens. There's back and there's forth. the opportunity Oops. for uh, incorrect data entry. Yeah. yeah. So so that's so that's really neat. So there's still going to be validation and checking, but happens in one source, and you know it's automatically uh, sent to the right places. Yeah, that's that's kind of comforting, um, knowing that like I've had that happen to me before, where I've had a grade uh, that wasn't the same affect my overall score, and I had to go back and investigate like why that was the case. And if you have that traceability, that's one thing that improves on. And I think all this. Like I, I've mentioned it before, but I think all of these improvements that we're talking about here link back to, yes, it's going to help in the immediate future as we're in a COVID world. But as we move into a post-COVID world, uh, there's there's all this um, integration and technology that we're talking about here that's going to affect many students in a positive way um, and educators, too. I, I keep you know just saying one uh, and and admins as well as well while we're at it. Right. <laughs> Um, so it looks like the next bullet point here are, is Google Meet. And uh, this is something that uh, Blake and I actually used for the show for a while. Um, we would uh, we would meet on Google um, as it was uh, it, it's, it's kind of like Zoom, but Google's Google's version of Zoom. And um, it sounds like they are making um, some Google is making some adjustments to kind of make it education focused, right? So they're looking at, um, kind of new management tools for the teachers. So they'll be able to like end meetings for everybody, right? So you're not just sitting on there saying, oh, my teacher sucks after the class is over and your teacher's still sitting there. It's just end everything right there. Um, it looks like they're also going to have the option to mute participants, which I can't believe that wasn't an option before, um, being able to stop disruptive students, you know? Um, uh, and they'll be able to control when students will be able to unmute themselves. So that's kind of handy, right? Because, um, it, like, let's say there's a a uh, presentation that every every professor, every teacher has a different presentation style. So you're you're talking, you're talking, you're talking. Some don't like questions until the end, and some like questions as it's happening. Um, and so, you know, I, I as an educator, I am one of the ones that tend to like the conversation as it's happening because we can go on tangents. But I also host a podcast, so there's that. Uh, but also. <laughs> You know, there are those that that prefer to just talk and talk and talk and say, ask me after. Um, And so this gives those educators a way to just mute everybody and say, okay, after I'm done, you can unmute and ask questions. Um, It looks like there's some moderation controls for screen sharing, chat access uh, and granting access into the meeting. So you won't have any cats coming in to your uh, to your classroom. and it looks like they'll also be available on mobile devices for teachers uh, in in the coming months. So that looks like a oh wow yeah it yeah. looks like a really powerful set of tools being added to Google Meet. And I think it was one of those things where I remember seeing early uh, 
earlier versions of Google Meet, and it it never seemed to have caught up to some things, other things like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, or maybe even Slack. Uh, and so I wonder if it's just a matter of time, um, as we're starting to see, for Google to catch up uh, on those on those um, different features. Uh, you know, again, there's different priorities, right, in terms of those other tools have uh, are, are funded by their license fees and subscriptions, uh, and and Google does too uh, in, in a little bit more indirect way. Um, so it's probably just a matter of priorities and, and growing the user base enough to be able to implement uh, these features. Uh, I do like the um, the also being available on mobile devices, yeah. and that, that gets uh, for backup. Uh, so it's one of those things where uh, when one is teaching a class on the, on their say computer and something goes wrong with the internet or something, uh, you know, at a key moment uh, to be able to uh, bring up a phone and, and maybe take a little bit of hit on the data side, but still keep the class going. Um, and so I think that's very important to kind of, uh, for reliability. And um, like I said, you know, with, with, with this, with those teach students, you know, they may be in, in different um, times or uh, what do you call it? Uh, different parts of their day, not, you know, accessing the computer. Uh, teachers may, may have that as well. Maybe there are certain conference calls or kinds of quick check-ins uh, that they can use their mobile phone and, and be able to meet with students. Yeah, and and so I'm I'm going to jump to the next point because it kind of goes all with this, right? So Google Classroom is actually integrating with with Google Meet as well, um, and so basically the way this is all going to work is that you're going to have, um, you know, it's going Google Meet is going to pull in that roster information, so it can tell when the teacher's on. Um, and it'll automatically give them like a, a, a host status, right? So they can manage the class. Um, and later this year, they're they're going to uh, they're going to add the meet sessions that are started outside of the classroom, uh, the Google Classroom, right? Will be also um, able to support multiple hosts. Uh, so, like, let's say you have um, a, a let's a college professor has a teacher's aide that they could, you know assigned to do all these tasks for them um whatever that is uh they'd be able to do that outside of the classroom um and it looks like there's there's going to be the ability to set up these breakout rooms and i know this is something that um um blake and i talked about on the podcast very early on in the pandemic was how do you organize these large-scale events or um you know, in, in the case of a classroom, how do you organize sort of these breakout rooms? And this is great for those group exercises that you hate, um, or at least I hated, right? <laughs> Get together with your peers and discuss this thing, um, which usually translated to do the thing for your peers. But anyway, I, I digress. The idea here is that you'd be able to have those sort of breakout rooms and presumably um, you have the ability to kind of... Um, get everybody back together uh at a at a set time um you know it looks like there's uh also some inclusivity here they're going to be able the students will be able to pick skin tones when they use emojis which seems like it should have been in there from the beginning it's i i don't use emojis often but i that's very important thing to have that representation there so uh that's great and then um in april so i guess what next month now uh, it looks like they're adding new settings to that admin console to give uh, school leaders the ability to set policies like who can join calls hosted by their school, 
and whether joining meets from other schools should be allowed. Um, so this kind of gets at that collaboration side. So this is this is again those admin users that we barely talk about. Uh, they're going to have sort of this control on um, you know the audit log side. They'll get those as well for all this stuff. Um, and uh, you know this will help them kind of triage any of those issues. Yeah, it's interesting with the administrator part uh, about uh, external participants' email addresses, uh, parents, and other guardians uh, that are starting taking a bigger role in, in their children's education, uh, being able to kept, be kept in the loop with some of these things, shorten the communication cycle, say for missed assignments, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, let's see the. So the started outside the classroom support multiple hosts. I wonder if that's something that uh, is kind of related to uh, kind of like an all hands school assembly. Yeah, you I'd imagine those? so. Yeah, We're, yeah, bringing bringing other speakers and and kinds of things, uh, or kind of a more community based kinds of things, a pep rally, that, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it's really interesting how everything is um, integrated together. Um, one of the challenges that uh, educators face is, is mentioned before, dealing almost in a system of systems, having to do one thing in Google, another thing with the, the homegrown app, uh, and uh, being able to kind of translate and, and move things uh, between those reliably. So that, that should be really interesting as, as that goes, goes along. Yeah, um, we got like two more points that we want to talk about here. So in terms of workspace for education, uh, looks like there's uh, they're, they're basically renaming it to integrate with their G Suite for education, right? So um, instead of just offering these two options, right, you have education fundamentals and plus, now they're adding the standard version and a teaching version um, or, or teaching and learning upgrade. Uh, starting next month um, for those who already have that G Suite for enterprise and education. There's a lot of names going on here, but the idea here is that, um, you know, they're, they're kind of uh, integrating all these features um, and they're, they're coming to uh, this, this workplace for education, workspace for education, uh, including some of these meet transcripts and, and save drafts from Google Forms. So a lot of the stuff that we talked about just seems like it's um, getting rolled up into this. Mm-hmm. So, so it sounds like this this whole uh, um, suite um, kind of implies that a lot of their file system um, and working working files are kind of under uh, can be under under that um, under that storage as well. Uh, so it's kind of like their shared drive, uh, but 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 on the cloud. Uh, and so I see a lot of opportunities in terms of reuse being able to see transcripts and other kinds of things that maybe previous teachers have used and maybe a new teacher comes in, being able to see, uh, uh, kind of replicate what uh, what previous teachers have done and then add their personal spin for, right. for improvement. Yeah, and then last but not least here, uh, we have um, Google Classroom Roster Sync. Uh, and this is, uh, so they're unlimiting, uh, looks like they're, eliminating the free unlimited storage that it had uh, for uh, qualifying schools and universities. Um, it's grown to serve, <laughs> according to Google, it's grown to serve more schools and universities each year and storage consumption has also rapidly accelerated. Um, so it looks like they're going to start charging for that, which is kind of a bummer. But at the same time, um, all institutions will now get 100 terabytes 
of pooled cloud storage shared across all their users, which is quite a bit, but not that much when you're thinking about, um, you know, data storage of video files. Um, and it'll it'll go into effect for existing customers in July next year, um, and it'll be immediate for those who sign up next year. Uh, so, um, you know, users basically for the bottom line here is that users won't have to do anything for this. Um, and that some of these changes that we talked about here are going to be coming up in the coming weeks. And it uh, looks like there are, uh, like you said in the blurb here, there's a lot of people that are using this service right now, right? 170 million students and educators worldwide now using this workspace for education. Um, and Classroom serves over 150 million users globally. Um, and, and that's up basically 110 million from a year ago. So uh, it, it, it's quite a bit. Right, so so these these uh, these changes are going to be impactful for a lot of people, um, and you know if you're if you're using this, I, I would love to hear from you. Um, but Frank, any other closing thoughts on on this whole Google Education Suite upgrade? It's it's really interesting timing for for these uh, upgrades, and one would think that oh well, you know we've got we're well on our way with vaccinations and and and. Um, Students are coming back to school, so this won't be needed as much. But I would I would argue that this would be needed more than ever. Uh, there'll be I think a lot of changes that um, happen during the virtual learning process this past year that'll be retained. And so yeah. thinking about this, like the um, you know the being able to do your work anywhere, I think will will stay. Um, uh, kind of a loose round where um, a lot of the this the the benefits of the Google Classroom is actually tracking um, an individual assignment, uh, and so uh, if you remember uh, when you were a student of uh, you know making sure that the assignment that you turned in the teacher got back, did you have your name on your paper? All that's in a sense done away. That whole cycle of oh I didn't get your assignment. Oh yes you did. That that's that's gone because a teacher can just go on to Google Classroom. It's, it's there or it's not. Right. Uh, and so being able to to probably keep some of that, I'm sure they'll, they'll <laughs> want to reduce that time as they move on to this. Um, probably, probably for a foreseeable future, kind of like a mixed learning environment where you have some online, some not, based on personal choices and and state mandates. Yeah, good loose round. All right, well, I just want to thank all of our patrons this week for selecting the news topic, and thank you to our friends over at Engadget for the article this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to our original articles in our Slack as we find them, so you can join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. 
All right, and we're back. Uh, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running, and thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, we are always updating our Patreon. I'm really excited about where that's at and where it's going. Um, I hinted at some stuff. I'll give you a little tease. Uh, we've been doing Human Factors Minute over on our Patreon, and this is something that uh, isn't included in that commercial that you just heard, but uh, we, we've been doing this Human Factors Minute. Uh, Frank, have you have you listened to any of our Human Factors Minutes? Yeah, here, here, there. <laughs> really interesting. Uh, so, so basically, what they are is it's just a it's a quick slice of of human factors life, and it's it's a wide topic. Anyway, my tease: we have uh, we have planned the next year of Human Factors Minute. So there is going to be content for you for the next year. Um, for for all our patrons, they are uh, <laughs> they're getting this in a weekly dose. So there's a every Tuesday they'll get a drop of this and. Um, you know, we have all this stuff planned out. So even if we miss a week, our patrons are not missing a week on Human Factors Minute. Um, and, and uh, you know, with that, if you if you were to uh, join us on Patreon now, I think there's over like 400 posts on there. There's uh, nearly, I think we're, we're almost at a year of content. So I think we're uh, 53 episodes of Human Factors Minute on there. You get those instantly if you join us. Anyway, I hate begging for money, so let's let's stop doing this. Uh, and we'll go ahead and get into this next part of the show we like to call it. It came from... It came from... It came from Reddit. Yes, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community's talking about, and this could be anything... Uh, as long as it uh, relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion amongst us. And Frank, we have uh, three this week. Um, we do look for our patrons. Uh, our patrons are able, we have a weekly Q&A with them, uh, keeping on with that thread, but uh, no, no patron questions this week. Uh, we also are taking questions from our live chat uh, across all of the streaming services that we are doing that on. So if you want to ask a question, now's the time. And uh, we have a couple up here for you today. The first one here is coming from the user experience subreddit. In fact, all these are from the user experience subreddit. What am I even talking about? Um, and this one's going to be uh, participants not in your demographic. Frank, uh, this one's from the user uh, IDK what to out my user. I don't know. Anyway, this one says, uh, does your user research always have to be from a target demographic? Isn't it also good to do surveys and usability tests for people who wouldn't use the product? Because if they can understand, with no knowledge on it, isn't that good? Frank, what do you think? Oh, that's always been a, uh, it's kind of a key question that's been uh, talked over the years in, in terms of uh, psychological research. Uh, and so there's always a balance between doing research on uh, a more general population where you can get insights um, that uh, all humans can provide uh, versus one for a target population. Uh, and so I think, yes, it is good to do uh, surveys and usability tests for a, a broad range, um, but there's uh, practical considerations, right? Uh, uh, being able to uh, run uh, a user uh, in a test uh, costs money, uh, costs time, uh, and it may not get the quite the data that that one needs. So it, it depends on the kind of test uh, that that's provided. Um, I would ask for maybe more of a middle ground of saying, hey, uh, there's a potential uh, new 
market that, that might happen for testing certain folks of the population. And so that might be a good way to kind of frame that question. It says, okay, we're going to have our, most of our tests on our target demographic, but let's um, ask for a little bit of exploratory kinds, kinds of things that can happen. Because you never know what you can find. There might be new insights, new, new kinds of things from this exploratory testing. Yeah, I think that's mostly right. You know, I think, I think uh, there's, there's one other kind of nuance that I'd like to throw in there too. Um, and that is uh, the issue with, um, yes, you want it to be used by a novice user versus an expert user. And I think that's the distinguish, uh, or that's that's the thing that we need to distinguish here, right? Is, is that there's, um, there's users that don't use your product. And yes, that's useful in a lot of settings, but there are very specific uh, products for very specific user types. And so if you can grab a novice user of a product, right? Someone who's going to be using this in their role on the thing that they're doing uh, and you can grab their input, that is invaluable because at least they have the knowledge of the domain that you're looking at, right? And then you can also test users that are um, that are uh, experienced in that thing. And so then you get that gamut versus the people that are outside of that gamut and have no idea what you're even looking at. Um, you know, I... I did a usability test uh, a, a long time ago on, on an electrical relay. Um, and, uh, you know, my boss at the time, he actually took the thing home and had his, his kids program an electrical relay. Um, and that's a very specific skill set for a very specific product. And they were able to do it. So that was one thing that we could bring to the table and say, hey, look, it's so easy. A kid could do it. Um, and, uh, you know, instead of caveman, you know. <laughs> So, so we did that, and um, that was a very powerful message to say that, hey, look, this product can be used by anyone. Um, and, you know, we took, we took the feedback from the two user groups that I described, the novice and the expert. And I think that really helped with understanding uh, someone who has that knowledge in the domain but may not necessarily have the experience using those products. Anyway, I think it's a great question. Um, any other loose rounds on this one? Yeah, I think it'd be part of a just kind of a testing plan, uh, and that that would be another piece of advice. Is maybe it's uh, because you want to get a good sample for whatever exploratory uh, tests you want to do, and so that could, if it's a part of a plan in itself, then you can sample different pieces uh, of of a, a target demographic or expand your targets, if you will. Yeah. All right, I'm going to get into this next one. How do you feel about ethics, Frank? Want to talk ethics? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. All right. So this one here is uh, uh, also from the user experience subreddit. This is Arcane UX. And this is a question about the ethics of leaving a job after two weeks. So they go on to write, currently working full-time UX job. Since working from home, I've had a lot more free time on my hands. I've contacted, local st I've contacted a local small business owner who I've worked for in the past when I was in college and asked if they'd be interested in me doing some small print-based designs for them, something really easy to do, can do from home, and make a little extra money doing it. However, unexpectedly, another opportunity has risen, a senior UX position, something that I'm very interested in and could advance my career, but it might be much more time-demanding, and I may not have time to take on this side job. It has been two weeks since working uh, for this small business, and if for some reason I got this new job offer, I would have to leave. I feel incredibly bad doing this so early. Would it be ethical for me to leave after two weeks? What would you do if you were in my position? Frank. Hmm. You know, th this is where interesting where 
the response to this might have been different uh, before these times. Uh, maybe if you asked a bit over a year ago versus versus now. Um, and so I think the what would you do? Uh, <laughs> I think being honest is 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 the 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 most important thing. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, ability to be honest in this. Um, if you're looking, said work for the past when they were in college, so there's an existing relationship there. Um, and because you, by being honest, you, you, you might not never you might not know um, how how things are. Um, as in, maybe because they had a personal relationship with this business owner, maybe that business owner um, put themselves a little bit on the line to get this person a job, uh, especially in these COVID times. Uh, and so that might be something where a, a discussion that had said, hey, I've got something that may be a little bit higher up on the ladder, a senior UX position. There might be some more benefits. Can we work out an arrangement? Um, I might not have time immediately to, to work on this, but maybe we can do a, a contracting or 1099 kind of thing and say, hey, when you know, if you really need something, I can help you out and take the time for that, and we can arrange an, uh, an hourly rate for that. So I, I think being honest is uh, will be fine. Um, but if it comes down to it, uh, you know, you, you want to be careful not to burn any bridges, but still, uh, your career is is very important. So if there's something that really gets you to the next level on the on the goal career goals that you're seeking, um, one sometimes has to go for that and. and and kind of be able to mentally and you know psychologically deal with any kind of potential consequences, but I, I think people are more understanding these days, so I, I wouldn't see any 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 wrong with being just completely honest. Yeah, I mean, look, here's here's my thoughts on it. Um, it it seems to me by the phrasing of this question, they say you know small print designs for them is something really easy to do. You can do it from home, and you can make a little extra money doing it. What, you know, how, how much time demand do you really expect this to take? I mean, you know, is this something that you can organize and put up with a couple weekends of, of working extra? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, Frank, yeah. or like you said, Frank, is it's that whole uh, don't burn bridges thing, right? Because I think that's really important. I think uh, a, a saved relationship with somebody that you, you know, know and trust can go a long way in the future. And so... um don't burn that bridge. If you can do both, do both. Uh, it sounds like, um, you know, and you also have no idea what this senior UX position is going to be like for the first week. It's mostly just like onboarding stuff and most positions that I've ever been in. Right. It's like onboarding. So maybe you could go home and do the other work. Like it's, it's, uh, it doesn't seem like one or the other to me. It seems like how can you make it work? Uh, and and if, in lieu of that, if you can't make it work, then follow Frank's advice and 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 um, be honest and and upfront with them and see how that works, right? Because you know if if it is a permanent employment thing, then that's a little trickier. But it sounds like it's contract work. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But by the way, it's by the way it's framed. Uh, it could be something that. Uh, the person can kind of work, like I said, both 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 jobs at the same time, and then when the time comes, have that conversation. Maybe have a friend in place that can help carry on the work. Because um, I imagine if I was an employer and someone came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, I can't do this anymore, but I have a recommendation on someone that that I trust," I would I'd be like, "Okay, that's fine. Yeah, you know, we can 
things can go on and 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 keep a positive uh, business relationship. Yes, I agree. All right, uh, we got one more here. Let's get into it. This is uh, dealing with resistance to your design recommendations and user data. This is from user Big Old Box of Wires. Um, so this says, "Hi guys, I'm currently user testing an app for a small startup company." I've recently completed my user interviews and user testing, and I'm in the middle of processing my data. However, as I begin talking to discuss my findings with the team, I'm noticing a lot of reluctance in making many significant changes based on the data. I've talked at length with some of the team, and their response seems to be their own justification that the design has to be this way or undermines their core philosophy for the business. The business in question is an app for wine connoisseurs, and the special uh, the specialist nature of the app means that most participants are only partial fits to the user demographics, being wine enthusiasts, but not exactly wine culture connoisseurs. This seems to be an internal justification for the team to dismiss data that they don't personally agree with. Uh, my UX design experience tells me that user demographics and participants don't have to be perfect to get good results for general usability, so I'm at a loss with how to approach this situation. Am I wrong? Is this specialist need for a particular user group going to really uh, color the data so significantly that I should take it into consideration to moderate my final feelings? And if not, how do I execute any meaningful change with a team that is dragging their feet? Thanks, guys. All right, Frank, you take this one. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'll be this over here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a tough one. So I see um, app for a small startup company. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, usually for startups, uh, not as much uh, standardization. Uh, so there's probably uh, a founder or some kind of core team members that have a um, a thinking of how it goes. Uh, you know, I th I think this interesting thing with the wine connoisseurs versus enthusiasts not something i'm too familiar with um but it sounds like uh they are just willing to try go for for design itself uh, a certain have the design come in a certain way uh gosh this, this is this is a tough spot i think i think this is this is kind of a pick your battles uh kind of mm -hmm. situation here um because a lot of it is still uh you know, as much as you trust your own uh, internal uh, intuitions and, and the data, it's still predicted. Um, so I'm not sure if it's worth the battle to, to continue with this um, right now. And so that's kind of part of the uh, kind of the art uh, of, of our business. There are some battles that you want to fight now and some battles that you, you kind of know how they're going to go. Um, but get more data, get more users involved and let let that data actual usage data speak for itself yeah that's a good point um i i think we've all kind of worked on teams where we butted head about against somebody that had a different idea about what the design should be than you and you know sometimes it's in a similar role as yourself sometimes it's another human factors person sometimes it's a developer um and in the case of uh, you know it, it sounds like this is a fairly uh smaller team um and it sounds like you know you, they're the only uh, person that deals with users on that team. And so in that case, it sounds like they're dealing more with like a developer or 
a designer or something that you know that just doesn't jive with and and in that case it's a unique thing but i do want to touch on the other part really quick so if you're dealing with another human factors engineer that's easy that's that's just explain to me why you think it should be a certain way uh, and let's try to meet in the middle um and most of us are yeah. amicable about that type of thing and you can work it out the interesting thing comes when you're working with um non-human factors people or non-ux people and so in this case i would strongly recommend um like like frank said uh pick your battles uh, you know you don't want to <laughs> uh you're working with these people you don't want to burn bridges so that's pulling in from the second question that we had tonight the uh the th- the number one thing i would recommend for this type of situation is um try your best to um phrase things or uh this is kind of like Palpatine level stuff here, but like try to get them to come to the same conclusion that you came to. Uh, and that's much harder to do than it is to say. But if you play that game and they come to that conclusion, you're not going to get the glory for coming up with that idea. They will, but at least you know what's coming, you know, what's best for the user, right? If you can say, Hey, you know, um, well, uh, why are we doing it this way? Is there any other way that we could do it? And don't like point fingers or anything like that. Be very careful with your language. Uh, it could it could serve the user better, and that's ultimately what your goal is, right? So that's kind of where I'm at. All right. Any any closing thoughts, Frank? Yeah, on that one, um, it kind of goes with with the expanding market, right, of the demographics. So today's wine enthusiast might be tomorrow's wine connoisseurs. So there might be still a way out there for getting. Uh, expanding the user base uh, and so I think that might uh, hopefully we'll uh, get that person on, on, on the right track kind of curious about this app. yeah me too maybe we'll look at it after the show <laughs> alright well that's going to be it for us today everyone let us know what you guys think of the news stories this week you can join the discussion on our slack or follow us on any of our social channels at HFactors Podcast you can email us show at humanfactorscast.com if you like what you want to hear you want to support the show there's a couple ways you can do that one, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Those reviews help other people find our show. Uh, you, two, you can tell a colleague about us. Uh, word of mouth is a wonderful way to spread the word about the show. And three, if you have the financial means and, and want to support us that way, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of fees that we're trying to take care of. So there's a Patreon that you can support. And we always make sure Patreon is a priority and that we're giving back to the community that gives to us. Um, so with that... Uh, I want to thank Mr. Frank Claxon for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about Google Classroom? Oh, available uh, on the uh, Human Factors Cast Slack, uh, as well as LinkedIn. Great. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, depends. it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.